starters, start your engines! Get the pace car! What for? Because you hit any other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski, I'll be your host for the next hour as we go over this past week in racing and tonight we've got an exciting guest. Uh, before I introduce our guest, joining me in the studio this evening, as always, Louise Torres and Richard Uden. Fellas, how are we doing? Good, thank you. They're going pretty well. All right, yeah, good week. So, uh, like I said, we have a guest uh, lined up with us tonight and I've got uh, Mark Dill author and race historian. Um, if you've uh, ever seen any of the social media posts from um, the first superspeedway.com, uh, that's been a labor of love of Mark's for years and years and years, and he's just released a book. Um, the book is called The Legend of the First Super Speedway, The Battle for the Soul of American Auto Racing. Uh, that book features a, uh, a forward by Tony Perella of the SVRA, a uh, introduction by Al Unser Jr. and a, and a a forward by Willie T. Ribs. Uh, so you've got some uh, great folks that helped you on that, Mark. And Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Frank. So what I want to ask you, where I want to start is now you're you're from Indiana, so it's kind of being a race fan is just kind of in your blood, like a lot of folks that are from the Indianapolis area. So. Uh, I know you've, you've been a race fan your whole life. You've you've worked in marketing and PR. You've you've worked with, uh, uh, I believe, Nortel and helped broker the deal to have have them sponsor uh, cars in Indy 500. You were part of the Indianapolis 500 winning uh, effort with Ari Leyendijk. Um You've also worked yes. for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You've you've worked with the SVRA. Um, so when did you first realize your love of very very early um, auto racing, because what I forgot to mention about the book is is nearly everything in the book takes place prior to the 1920s. It's very early racing history. So where did you develop that love for that? Well, uh, you said it. I uh, grew up in Indiana, actually, north side of Indianapolis. And uh, back in those days, uh, you know, we're talking early 60s. There, it was, and they literally used the term, India no place. And there really was nothing going on. This was pre-Indiana Pacers, and there just wasn't anything else going on in the city, except in May. We turned the lights on, and everybody was buzzing about the Indy 500, and all those drivers were superstar rock stars in Indianapolis, as they still are. And I just couldn't help but, you know, I was literally playing with cars at my father's feet. And uh, I, I, uh, he, I remember him talking about Jimmy Clark, and he's the world champion. Well, that was my favorite. He's the world champion. And I, I just got thoroughly enthralled with it. So now, like we talk about, you're looking at the very, very early years of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And one thing that most people don't realize is that, uh, you know, the 
Indianapolis 500 was not the first race there. You know, one of, one of my favorite trivia questions to stump somebody with is who's won the most races at Indianapolis? And somebody will say A.J. Ford or Rick Mears, and then somebody else will come along and they say, oh, no, no, it's Jeff Gordon. But the answer to that is Johnny Aiken, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and you've, correct. Uh, you've, Great got, driver. you've got a number of articles about uh, Johnny Aiken in your book, so I'd, I'd like you to just, just talk about him a little bit and some of his accomplishments because he, uh, he was rather instrumental in testing the bricks uh, as well, correct? Yeah, you know your stuff. Uh, yeah, when they first put the bricks, uh, laid the bricks down, actually even before the track was complete with bricks, they were testing different uh, materials for the running surface, and one of them was creosote wood block. And, of course, there were bricks. And uh, what they did is uh, he he worked for the National Motor Vehicle Company. Uh, one of the founders, Art Newby, was president of that uh, manufacturer, Indianapolis-based manufacturer. And they literally sunk steel poles into the ground opposite ends from a platform of bricks that were was just a little bit longer than the car and they chained the uh, car to a pole at the back and the pole at the front and then they had him get in there and stand on it and kind of twist the wheel around and they just wanted to see would that disrupt the running surface and uh, the bricks passed with uh with flying colors and yes, Johnny Aiken. That's a little bit of obscure history, but it's it's just the kind of color I love. Yeah. Now Johnny, of course, there were before the Indy 500, they would have multiple races over the course of a weekend, over multiple weekends over the year at the Speedway, uh, and some of mm-hmm. these were just a little five lap event, or, or some of them even as or a five mile event, which would be two laps. But uh, uh, yeah. so what? And and so the and they had balloon races. Uh, but the, yep. the the old story is that declining attendance led them to try to make one spectacular event. Um, is that was that kind of universally agreed upon, or or were, was there a little infighting between the um, the early owners of the speedway and how to proceed? Yeah, I mean there was always a bit of infighting, and I try to call that out in the book. I mean, it, 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 you know, they were people, and they got in the same room, and they had disagreements, and you know. Uh, Frank Wheeler in particular, I think, picked on Art Newby, uh, and he was a big, he was a big blustery guy, and uh, you know, so they had their egos and their insecurities and everything. So it wasn't like sweetness and light the whole time, but they obviously could work together enough to launch this incredible speedway. So, um, but that's one of the things I want to call out in the book is I want people to get to know these people. I try to flesh them out fully as human beings, and then you decide whether you would like them as a friend or somebody you just wouldn't hang out with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I don't know if I have a beer with Barney Oldfield. <laughs> you know, he seemed like a, <laughs> just reading some of the stories. He seemed like a really, really, really sly promoter. But but he was, you know, largely one of the first superstars of, of racing, and largely because yeah. he marketed himself so well. So how did the yeah. How did the AAA uh, come to be the, you know, the primary sanctioning body for uh, 
early American racing. Because I know, I know Barney tried to promote some of his own things there and non-sanctioned races and whatnot. But was that, you know, was that was that as ugly as say, like you know, this split that we remember from the '90s or the old USAC cart stuff? Yeah, well, it, it was a little complicated, but it was really in the formative years. There was a, a competitive uh, organization in the Northeast, Automobile Club of America, and uh, the automobile American Automobile Association was headed up at one point by um, Vanderbilt and uh, Willie Kissam Vanderbilt, Jr., and of course, he was the guy that got the uh, the Vanderbilt Cup running, which was really kind of the Indy 500 Daytona 20 Daytona 500 race of the day, and that was in 1904. And it, 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 the the fact that he he went with the AAA really angered these guys in the ACA, and they got into a uh, a match, we'll say, and. Um, it was a lot like CART and IRL uh, in the 90s and early part of this century. And uh, they ended up with this awkward compromise. And ACA had staked out the claim for sanctioning events that involved European factory teams. And so in 1908, the Vanderbilt Cup had really been kind of diminished because they were allowed to run foreign manufactured cars, but not factory back foreign manufactured cars. And the ACA went, and I'm sure you know all about, uh, they first held it in Savannah, uh, what they called the American Grand Prize, which was an Americanization of the Grand Prix that started in France in 1906. So um, they had this uneasy alliance, but... Uh, everything I've read about the ACA was that they really were not, they were hobbyists. They were not, they were not of the breed of, uh, of Fisher friends. Those were serious businessmen. They did everything with the thought of making a profit. And, uh, both Vanderbilt and the heads of the ACA, they were, gentlemen racers and they thought it was beneath them to worry too much about making money and uh, ACA in particular just kind of died out now what you mentioned about Barney Oldfield is um, he too was a bit of a competitor but he was just out there trying to self-promote and he did these barnstorming things and they were basically rigged races so that he would always end up winning he might make it look close but he would win and the, he'd go to remote areas of the country, some places that he'd never even seen an automobile before, and just blow their minds by going still pretty darn fast. And uh, the AAA, they, uh, the, he was a problem for them because they were actually worried. And he was the first true American uh, motorsports superstar they were worried that Barney was going to be bigger than them. And um, so they banned him from their races. It was always a battle. Always a battle and still a battle. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's nothing new so, under the sun, is there? 
Yeah, now, speaking of early racing, it seems like probably, I would imagine, auto racing first started, it seemed like, as soon as there were two different cars available, we, we wanted to race them against one another. I mean, auto racing dates back to, you know, the invention of the automobile, uh, you know, back in the 1890s. Some of the early races were these uh, affairs that were from city to city, and a lot of time it was an endurance test of the car, and so-called <laughs> track racing didn't you know, come around until a little later, but I was reading, um, uh, I was reading an article, I was reading one of, one of your, uh, your summaries that we had a, um, you know, kind of the Northeast really kind of favored the, uh, racing through city streets while track racing was more popular in the Midwest and South, largely because we used a lot of converted horse racing facilities, uh, although they found mm-hmm. those to be quite dusty, but, uh, there was a little bit of a, um, an uneasy tension between road racers and oval racers um, in, in the early days, was there not? Yeah, there was crossover because drivers are drivers, racers are racers. They just wanted to race anywhere. But the organizing bodies uh, frequently were at odds, the track promoters and so forth. And, uh, for example, I mentioned the Vanderbilt Cup. That was on a variety of configurations on Long Island, which was at the time – viewed to be countryside and uh you know people would have their summer homes there and so forth and um they would drive through a lot of like cabbage fields and you know just it was agrarian and um they just uh the the it's kind of a red state blue state kind of deal i mean that the the advocates that were most focused on road racing uh were in the northeast uh or more east coast it it eventually expanded out to places like california but in the beginnings that's where it was and then the roads were just so poor as and as the further west you met you went the less developed things were so they saw, started turning to uh, horse tracks because at least they were flat. But as you say, they were very dusty. And uh, that was something Oldfield always complained about. And they had little thin rails uh, for fencing, which was totally inappropriate. It worked for a horse, but it didn't going to work for a big 2,000-pound car that is, for one reason or another, goes out of control and crashes through them. And you had spectators being killed and obviously drivers and mechanics as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the early days, it, <laughs> the people would stand there right, right at the side of the track and watch if you watch some of those early clips. Yeah. You know, it's just well, like, you know, they, you, they still do it, you know, like... Uh, some of them rally races, seen, yeah. Rally racing, yeah, you know, it's like, what are you people thinking? But... Uh, yeah, get me behind a so, fence. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be guilty of that once I'll, or twice, but anyway... <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, I know what a race car can do out of control. I want to be uh, well protected. Yeah, I want to be away yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, now, uh, yeah, early racing again. Yeah, was uh, they're still trying to figure out how to do it, but you know, because they were yeah, they were they did like automobile polo uh, at state fairs, and and auto racing became popular at state fairs across the country. And, and again, like you said, a lot of people haven't seen a car, so they would bring these things in. Um, and people would do that. So the, I I believe if I'm not mistaken, generally credited as the first purpose built track for 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Um, auto racing is Brooklyn's, which is in the UK. Uh, so, and and of yep. course, Milwaukee claims yeah. to be one of the oldest, but Milwaukee is a converted horse racing track. So, is is the Indianapolis right. Motor Speedway the first full um, purpose built for auto racing track in the United States, or are there a few others that were before that? Uh, you know, you like you said, they, there were people that made claims. There was a horse track in. Uh, Morris Park um, in New York that w- claimed that they were, but they they went through this period where the, the state outlawed uh, the paramutual betting and uh, the track on track promoters were just trying to keep it afloat, and they d- thought that the newfangled race cars might attract crowds, and in the long run, it didn't work out. Um, the Speedway in Indianapolis was really the first one that was sustainable. But hot on the heels of that, you had like the board track at Playa del Rey, the first board track in 1910. And um, that, you know, lasted a few years. None of them lasted very long because the maintenance on them was nearly impossible. But um, it was definitely a purpose-built speedway and very fast because of high banking. Yeah, those those – Plank tracks were kind of like a an evolution of like a velodrome. Is that is that you know? Yeah, bicycle yeah, track yeah. Sort of. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've not be... ever seen in person an old plank track because most of them are gone and very few have been saved for posterity. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've seen a couple of uh, you know like go kart tracks built on wood planks at uh, you know places down like in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where you can. Run your little go karts over that, kind of get the feeling about how how really bumpy that was. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, were the were the the plank tracks considered to be more dangerous than than the dirt tracks or the paved tracks, or or you know, or just was everything crazy dangerous? Yeah, basically everything was crazy dangerous. But the <laughs> board tracks have developed uh, a real reputation. I mean, so many drivers lost their lives on uh, board tracks uh for example two indy 500 runners i can think of gaston chevrolet and joe boyer um you know it, it, and a, 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 a great number of others that just aren't coming to mind for me right now but they were pretty deadly and one of the reasons were they were super fast and they got into the 1920s and they started cutting laps at 140 miles an hour in these Millers and Duesenbergs. And I, I, after looking at all this, I feel like that in the 20s and 30s became actually the most dangerous, even more dangerous than the earliest days, simply because the cars were going a hell of a lot faster. And so it was, I remember uh, Bob Berman uh, reading about him, I think it was 1914, and he was thrown out of his car, a barrel rolled, and he was thrown out of the car on the speedway. And uh, 
didn't break any bones. He had a lot of, you know, abrasions and tore up his pants. But, uh, you know, he was only going 70, 75 miles an hour. I wouldn't want to jump out of a car at that speed. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it doesn't sound that fast, but, yeah, but (laughs) in the ground. Yeah, but relative to 140, you know, you know, it makes a difference. And so I I just, looking at the numbers of people that, uh, especially drivers that lost their lives in those eras, I, I, I'm of the opinion that the twenties and thirties were the deadliest times. Certainly. Yeah. Now I want to, I don't want to use the whole show to share old racing stories because I want to talk a little bit about um, your research for the book. Now you've, uh, you've got tons of old, um, newspaper clippings that you've, you know, and thankfully people kind of realize early on that newspapers should be safe for posterity. And a lot of these are on microfiche and microfilm and, and a lot right. of it has, has been digitized now. You know, the same cannot be said of, of a lot of early television, which is just lost forever. But, uh, how, uh, how widespread was your research in finding all these old newspaper articles. I mean, did you have to travel far and wide, or were you able to, you know, this day and age kind of uh, access a lot of it electronically? Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, when I first started, it was, uh, you know, about 08. So you you reflect on that, and you realize how much the technology's changed just in that relatively short period of time. So, you know, it used to be you'd have to, uh, you know, Xerox, anything you found on microfilm. And then if you wanted it in digital form, you had to take it home and scan it yourself. And uh, then eventually they got to the point where you, you just put a thumb drive in and, uh, and it'll uh, scan, uh, the viewer would scan it for you. I went uh, to a number of places. I remember going up to the big library, uh, what is it, uh, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and I live in North Carolina, so that wasn't like super far, but it wasn't close. And uh, I stayed up there the better part of a week, and it just blew my mind, all the stuff. And as you <laughs> say, it's wonderful that they, um, y- you know, that people appreciated that those early uh, periodicals covered uh you know, really captured the history. Uh, I guess they say like newspapers are the first draft of history. And I think it's true. And um, so I collected a lot of stuff there and I got a sense of how much there was. And I ended up paying some researchers like at the uh, Detroit Public Library. They've got a big uh, automotive branch no surprise and then when i was living in indianapolis i would go at times to the marion county public library and uh, especially if you're interested in indianapolis motor speedway um that that's just the best place to go i mean the indianapolis star the indianapolis news at the time and and the uh the sun were uh, if you go on my website you'll find every article that was written in Indianapolis papers for the entire month of May for 1911. And I got interested in 1913. So I did the same thing with that. And, 
wow. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to say how much time I spent doing that, but I, it, it's a passion. Oh, it has to be a passion, yeah. Like I say, labor of love. Now, did you, now you had mentioned that you tried to really capture the flavor and the personalities of this folks. So did your research also um, involve trying to uh, interview somebody who have, who, you know, may be old enough to, uh, to have family stories to share? Uh, about some of these, you know, folks that have long since passed away? Yeah, I, I, you don't know, uh, not family members. I did spend some time talking to Donald Davidson, who I regard to be a friend, a historian at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, he may not think I'm a friend of his, but I'm a <laughs> but, uh No, Donald's I, a sharp guy. I, I yeah, consider, I love that dude. <laughs> I consider him a friend. He's a good guy and a wealth of information. And, you know, he's well into his seventies now. And he was an enthusiastic kid when he came over, uh, stateside, uh, in the early sixties. And back then you had guys like Ray Haroon who they were still around and he spent some time talking to Ray Haroon. So, uh, <laughs> Donald's probably one of the last people with firsthand experience talking to drivers like that. Uh, he talked to Ralph Mulford. He finished second in the first um, Indy 500 and, you know, several of the other people that were still alive in the 1960s. So I got some sense from him on that. Uh, beyond that, I, I read a lot of biographies and Fisher is actually pretty well documented. Um, and there's been three or four books written about him one by his wife, and you can download the entire book uh, at firstsuperspeedway.com. And um, also Fred J. Wagner, who was the first starter of the Indy 500. I've got his, his book, Saga of the Roaring Road, for free, full book, downloadable on my site. And uh, it's it's whimsical, but it, it I still thought it gave me the flavor of – the context, which was really important to me, the context of the era, as well as the facts about uh, what events happened on what dates and what were the results, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it was just a lot of research, and but no family members. Okay, yeah, I was just wondering how you kind of captured that flavor because, I've again, again I've read a, read a lot of excerpts from your book, and they're really – Really interesting and, and, and very, very deep. So, But um, I don't want to dominate the interview because Louise is waiting here in the wings. He's got a question for you. So, Louise, what you got, buddy? <laughs> yeah, okay. it, kind of, it kind of follows up with what you mentioned about personalities. We like, talked about Barney. What other racing personalities that around that t- time period that stood out? Like, Obviously, you had like a Chevrolet and a Ralph De Palma of this time period. But who else stood out from that department? Yeah, well, there's several of them. I delve mostly into the book. My book is written from the point of view uh, of Barney Oldfield and Carl Fisher. So one chapter you're reading about the way Barney sees everything happening. And then the, the other, then the, maybe the next chapter you, you're reading about Carl. And, but I, I think there's several other compelling characters. Um, you know, certainly Louis Chevrolet. I mean, he was he was a bit of a madman, um, a mechanical genius, uh, but, you know, his temperament 
made it nearly impossible to work with him. And uh, but I think as a driver, he certainly is respected. And you know, and Barney got all, all, along with him, even though Louis beat him frequently. And uh, Ralph De Palma is uh, another guy, uh, you know, who was uh, he, he was he was uh, very deferential to the wealthy individuals that could provide him equipment. And, um, and Barney didn't like that. He didn't respect that. He wanted to be his own man. And he felt Ralph was too easy around these, uh, these guys that, uh, Barney felt, uh, didn't have a right to be pretentious. And, uh, you mentioned Johnny Aiken. He's another one, uh, great personality. I just see him as just a, a really, really intelligent man and a gentleman, and he uh, was successful as a race car driver. A lot of people don't know he managed uh, Jules Gu when he won the Indy 500, and some of that was because uh, the Speedway wanted the foreign teams, and Peugeot came over with Gu, and Aiken. Um, worked for national which had pulled out the previous year after they won the race with joe dawson and he uh but he spoke french and he was he knew what he was he knew how to you know get around that track and uh the biggest single thing that i read was they came over with i believe continental tires which just weren't the right uh composition to handle the bricks and he had them switch to Firestones, and um, and those had all been developed at the Speedway. So that made a huge difference as to whether or not Goo would go down in history as an Indy 500 winner. So uh, there's other people. I, one of uh, uh, another guy I like to talk about. Two of them: David Bruce Brown and Tom Kincaid. And David Bruce Brown is the better known of the two, and he won the the grand prize in uh, Savannah twice and uh, tragic though 25 years old he was he lost his life uh, trying to uh, repeat as a grand prize winner and in uh, in 1912 and then Tom Kincaid he was a very promising young driver and Aiken was his mentor and he too drove for national and it's just a sad story. He won a couple of races. He won the Prestolite 100 at the speedway. And then in, uh, in 1910, he was, uh, testing at the speedway and it was, uh, July and, uh, he got into the fence on the backstretch some, for some reason, and he lost his life. And, I, I like to tell people it's no big stretch to think that Tom Kincaid would have been in the 1912 national winner if he had lived um, be, because they hired Joe Dawson from Marmon because Marmon had quit after the first victory in 1911. And so they, they needed a, a young hot shoe. And they knew about how good Joe Dawson was. Uh, but Tom Kincaid was their employee and probably just as talented. Uh, 
but uh, obviously he wasn't available. So I'm going on and on. I'll shut up now. But I, I, there's just, there no, are. You don't have to shut up. No worries. I, I do have this, a follow. Yeah. yeah, I do have a follow up though that you mentioned about this. Sure. Was it all budgetary reasons why certain cars, like after they win, they leave, or are there more political leverages involved that they just exit after achieving quick success? Yeah, good question. Um, I think it's like we were saying earlier, <laughs> nothing changes. And uh, there was never an era where there was more factory involvement than in the first four or five Indy 500s. And everybody, and even prior to that, all the racing that was going on and the, and in my book, I kind of, I start in 1902 and chronicle the progress of racing and with the culmination of the Indy 500 being constructed and then paved with bricks. So um, everybody was eager to establish their brand and prove their product capabilities and reliability uh, in automotive contests. And um, after, you know, like any crowded market, it started to shake out and you get, up to around World War One, and the factories started to pull out, and it was just like what happens now. They feel like they got the value they needed out of being in the competitive uh, arena, and um, said, "Yeah, this this is costing us a lot of money. I, I think we we we've gotten the value we need, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, leave for now." And, uh, you know, you see that happen. You've seen it happen throughout history. And it was uh, very much that way, too. So it, it was primarily budget stuff. That's what I figured. Like, things don't change in a matter of a century. We still see it these days, especially in the sports car, even Formula One. You see engine suppliers or factories just pull out despite achieving success, or sometimes they just flat out don't like they expected. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you either quit because you're embarrassing yourself, but more frequently you see somebody come in and mop up and then say, okay, I did it. You know, I'm uh, I'm now at the point of diminishing returns, you know, and we could all list names of companies that have made that decision. And, um, it, you know, it's just kind of the way the game works, I guess. Yeah, it's very interesting that, you know, you bring up the, international involvement in the very early races there because you know you had Peugeot in there you had um uh, Delage in there uh, and uh the very early years before before the world wars but then you know after particularly after world war Two, we you know saw a long stretch where every starter was an american you know every winner was an american and and we got mm -hmm. this uh uh, you know, America-centric thing about the Indy 500, and even today, you know, somebody's people's biggest complaints are not enough American drivers. I'm like, well, we've got a lot of good ones. You know, if you, you know, if you haven't met yeah. Joseph Newgarden or Ryan Hunter Ray or or perhaps Brian Herta, we've got plenty of great American drivers in the field, though. Um, but the the very early races were called the International Sweepstakes. And it was mm -hmm. it was open to and there was nothing else like it in the world, because in right. Europe we were, we were racing through city streets in Europe. They, you know there wasn't anything like it. So, um, other than like Peugeot who found success there and Delage who found success there, what were some of the other very early manufacturers to uh, 
you know, bring their products over to uh, the United States and, and in, in Indianapolis, and in particular in any of the other kind of AAA races. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned international sweepstakes. That was as much aspirational as reality, and uh, they worked really hard to try to get, um, you know, companies interested. And while they were willing to come for the East Coast, uh, for the Vanderbilt, um, you know, it was a different world back then. And the, the transportation from the East Coast out West, and they considered Indiana West, um, it was just an extra added expense, and, and it took up more time uh, for travel time and having uh, personnel, drivers and crews over there. So, um, you know, it, 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 you had uh, Peugeot, you had, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was uh, obviously Delage One as well. Um, that's just not coming to mind, but I uh, there was another group. 1913 was actually the first race we saw international competition. And um, it was limited to about three teams. And uh, just as a tri- point of trivia, the one that I'm not thinking about right now, um, it, they came over on the Lusitania, if you know anything about that boat. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one the of one the big naval disasters. They, they picked up yeah. the Titanic survivors, right? Yeah. And it, yeah. But that, you know, they came over and, you know, the, 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 the disaster happened like three years later. But it was just interesting to note they came over on that ship and that's just how they got around. And, uh, but there really wasn't uh, all that much. You, you got a little bit of, um, an un- uptick and I'm thinking about like Sunbeam and, um, right after, um, and the Peugeots, the Peugeots were easily the best cars in the world. And in fact, the speedway with Jim Allison, he started his Allison, uh, uh, engineering outfit. Um, they basically reversed engineered Peugeot's. And so this Americanized version won the Indy 500 for them in 1919 with Howdy Wilcox. But, um, so I saw you did see that. I, I saw I saw was the other four manufacturers. In yeah, I saw it. Thank you. Yeah, I sold it. I, I sold it. I'm sorry, I pronounced it wrong. I, I was looking it up while you were talking. I said, "Well, I, I, I'm sure I could find this fact real quick. Found it on your website." Um. Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I knew it. I, you know, I told you I'm over you. You know, so yeah, I gotta take my yeah. coverage in or Good something. Stuff. But uh, yeah, I sold it, and uh, that was interesting. They didn't get to the speedway until like the day before the race. And then they went out and they ran their, uh, you know, qualifying runs. And they didn't start in order of speed back then. They just had a minimum speed. And frankly, uh, Fisher and his guys would have let them in no matter what because they just wanted to have, they wanted to claim they were an international event. And uh, so, yeah, um, yeah, the, they came over as well. And they were the ones on the Lusitania. But, it, you know, you just didn't see a lot of it. And then you got into the uh, 20s, and it was, aside from uh, uh, Louis Chevrolet and Art Chevrolet and their 
Monroe's and their uh, Frontenacs uh, that were successful in the first couple of races of the decade. It was largely Miller and Duesenberg after that. And, uh, and that's kind of what you were talking about. It, it just evolved into an American sport. In fact, I remember being a kid, my favorite driver was Jimmy Clark. I think I mentioned that. And when he won in, in 1965, it was the first, uh, uh, form born winner since Dario Resta in 1916, who drove a Peugeot and, uh, so it was just a different world. Now, of course, you've had all kinds. I mean, you know, you've got uh, Taku uh, from Japan winning the Indy 500. Uh, so you're seeing more international, at least in the driver level, uh, more international involvement, more varied involvement than for a long, long stretch, decades, uh, where it was pretty American. Yeah, all that uh, post-World War II, you know, America, America first sentiment, yeah. So, but it's uh, yeah, yeah. it's just very inter- interesting how it all started. So now, Richard, are you still with us? Oh, I'm still here. Don't worry. Okay, I just as <laughs> as long as we're talking about uh, um, international involvement in in early American motor racing, I was wondering you, as my favorite foreigner, would have <laughs> any anything to add or to ask? Um, I guess what would be interesting is is obviously your <laughs> in-depth knowledge of, of the history of um, especially Indianapolis far far out far out stretches man but um you know it, is there any driver of and it's always a difficult question to answer right? any driver of, of sort of those generations you know the early initial concepts of motorsport that you think you know would have been able had just that that natural ability and would have been able to step into a, a modern car and drive that and vice versa do you think any of the guys out there today had that sort of natural car craft that probably would have been suited, um, you know, in the hundred years ago. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've thought about that and I guess it's just a topic for speculation and tracing, but, but um, you know what I think, I think these guys were champions. They were champions. I mean, the best and the best today are champions and they're going to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of the difference would be, obviously, the technology was different. But if you said, hey, what if Ralph De Palma was born in, you know, 1970 instead of, uh, yeah. you know, in the 1800s? Well, he would have grown up with it and been comfortable with it. I, you know, And if I look back on drivers of that era, then you have to put Ralph right up there. He, mm-hmm. he still, he didn't, he, he had the record for the most number of laps led in the Indy 500 in, until, uh, Al Unser Sr. eclipsed him in, uh, what was that, 1993. And, um, and, and, and Al only has a few laps more than Ralph. Yeah. So Ralph was a terror and he should have won the race a few times. If you have a, if you have any criticism of him, it might be that he was just really, he, he would just press the car to the limit. He was relentless. And that, in that way, <laughs> I compare him a little bit to Mario Andretti. I mean, yeah, Mario yeah. had a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, uh, mechanical trouble and maybe some of it was because he just pushed too hard. He, yeah, self-inflicted. Yeah. 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 So, 
one guy I think that's interesting is Dario Resta, and I won't take anything away from him, but he um, he came over in the Peugeot, and there was a dealer who his name is escaping me right now, but the the import uh, company for Peugeot in the United States. So it was sort of a factory back car, and um, they entered the Peugeot, and of course. Some of these guys were interested in coming over because World War One was breaking out. They just frankly wanted to get the hell out of there and they wanted to keep racing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, who can blame them? And yeah. uh, so Dario, I don't know, ever had the chance to really. It's hard to assess because he had easily the best car. And, uh, you know, how well would he have done? Uh, I, I I think Lewis Hamilton is tremendous, but you could also look at that and say, man, when has a when has a Formula One team ever been more dominant? You know, the answer well, is never. Exactly. Yeah. And so he's doing it, and he's beating all his teammates. So obviously he's a tremendous driver. But uh, and I think Dario was as well. But it, it you know, if I was gonna. I would take that into account if I'm stacking up, uh, you know, the skills of some of the, some of the drivers. Dario was the first uh, driver to win an IndyCar championship on points in 1916 and number two. And it was decided that the final race of the year was Johnny Aiken. Okay. There you go. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, speaking of the early championships, the and we had talked about newspapers being preserved, but and we talked about the you know the ACA versus the AA, and it seems to me as I because I try to research a lot of stuff, right? And it's really interesting you you brought up, um, you know, Ralph De Palma because I I had written a little bit a few years ago at the hundredth anniversary of the Indy Five Hundred, and went through every okay. you know every of the ninety nine races. And I think I called the article 99 races, 99 problems and singled out one guy in each race who, who had a, yes. who could have, should have won. And, and the only guy that made the list more than people named Andretti was Ralph De Palma. Yes. So. <laughs> I, I think there's parallels between the two of them. I absolutely. And of course they yeah. were both born in Italy. There you go. But what I wanted yeah. to, um, bring up, it's so funny. I just lost my train of thought. Um, the early the early racing records, a lot of the ACA records are just lost, lost to history. Yeah, and we they, yeah. They, so they there are a few accounts here and there, and, and there's a guy I know named James Geisler who's a statistician who compiles racing stats that, that are mind-numbingly um, accurate, and he's, <laughs> it, even he even has a a lot of gaps in in the older stuff where you know there's it uh, could be, you know, might might be 40 wins, might be 30 wins. So, um, I mean, how uh, how much of the early stats were you able to uh, kind of uncover and verify in doing your, your research? You know, I, I can't say. I didn't approach it that way. Uh, one, it's just really hard to find. And I, I was intrigued by sort of the romance the personalities etc i mean obviously i can tell you races that were won and big events like briarcliff the first road race that barney oldfield was in 
and actually did fairly well in it. Um, but I, if on my site, I have a book. It's literally a book. It's by a gentleman in England called Darren Galpin. And I have it on my site for super speed. Uh, and he's, he picked up on my website and I got to say, there's a lot of really nice people that have sent me stuff, uh, totally unsolicited, but it's quality stuff. Uh, and Darren has just amassed an incredible, um, collection of statistics on racing between like 1900 and 1946. And uh, if I ever wanted to look anything up, I would go to Darren's book. And it's a couple hundred pages long, PDF, obviously, and it's on my website. And he wasn't inspired to try to get it formally published because uh, it's just not what turns him on. But he was delighted to provide it to me and uh, in that way cast a public light on it. So if you haven't checked that out and you're interested, um, that's an excellent resource. All right. Sounds great. Now, Louise, you have another uh, – you want to come in with another question? Yeah. Speaking of the Speedway, it was talked about like Jack Egg. It reminded me of how the Harvest Grand Prix kind of came back because people don't realize that was – even I didn't know until it was announced that the Harvest Grand Prix, the Harvest event was a thing before it kind of revived itself this this year. And only not only that, it seems like people tend, if I remember correctly, was it like motorcycle racing a huge deal before the 500 back in, in the early 1900s or so? Late 1900s? Well, it was. Yeah, it was in general, but at the Speedway, it wasn't very successful at all. In fact, it was just a complete fiasco. And if you really read about it, like on my site, you realize um, the motorcycle riders didn't want to be there. The the uh, team owners, they didn't want to be there. It was a gravel surface. And if you can imagine trying to lean in just as, you know, you did that then, you do it now. To, to take the right line through the corner, um, you know, the gravel was so loose, it would just, you know, inevitably you'd break away. And there were just a lot of injuries. Nobody got killed, thank God. But probably the most famous motorcycle um, rider of the era, and I don't know how whether you pronounce his name, Jake DeRosier. I heard someone else pronounce it Jake DeRosier. But... Um, He's a fascinating guy, and I have a lot of stuff on my site about him. And he was very severely injured in um, the first motorcycle races at the Speedway, and that was in August uh, 1909. Uh, they held motorcycle races one weekend, and then the next weekend they had the uh, first automobile races. But uh, there were a lot of angry words and uh, just animosity between the uh, uh, the, pe the motorcycle people and uh, the Speedway founders. They just felt like the Speedway had been irresponsible, hadn't provided them with the kind of facility that uh, could allow them to conduct 
uh, entertaining and safe races, relatively safe. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you, you you read about it, and there might have been 40 entries, for example, in one of the races because it was, as you said, it was it was supposed to be uh, two days after how bad it was on the first day. The uh, and it was called the Federation of American Motorcyclists, with SAM was the big sanctioning body of the time, and they just said, "To hell with this, we're not coming back." And uh, so the two-day mate got reduced to uh, a, a one-day deal. And throughout the day, um, as conditions continued to deteriorate, they uh, riders would just pack up and go home. So I'm not going to do this. And so they ended up with races that were supposed to have 40 bikes in them, and they'd, they'd end up with two or three. And so if you can imagine being out there at the track as a spectator, trying to take that in, uh, you know, that's not much of a show. No, not. And with gravel, even to this day, like, yeah, gravel, putting it with competitive racing does not get a boat well. Yeah. The the, the fam guys wanted to move it to the Indiana State Fairgrounds, you know, and they've done flat track racing there. And that probably would have worked out okay for them. But uh, Fisher dug his heels in and said, we had a contract and I've been promoting this and, you know, you're not going to do this to me. So, like I said, they got they had some harsh words. All right. Now, Richard, you've got another question. You want to jump in again? Yeah. One last one. Um, so obviously there's been, or, or, or I guess what we call the Indy 500, there's been a hundred and something of those races now. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously you've, you've researched those in all great, great detail. And for the vast majority of those, we have, um, uh, you know, video footage and at least, you know, a large amount of, of sort of uh, journalistic reports from these races. But is there any any sort of one race, if you like, that you think, oh, I wish I was there to have seen that? Yeah, honestly, I mean, the culmination of my, uh, just off the top of my head, the culmination of my book is uh, the the May 1910 race meet uh, at the Speedway. And uh, it was a variety of races. But uh, that was the first race after uh, the track was paved with brick. Yeah. And um, I think it would have been fascinating. And most people don't know it, but... For example, the Marmon Wasp, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people think it was designed for the first Indy 500. It was not. They started designing it in the fourth quarter of 1909, and what they wanted to do was run it at the Speedway, but there was no Indy 500, and, uh, but they just knew the Speedway was going to be the place to be, and it was local to them. Marmon was a comp- Indian company, and... Um, Haroon drives the Marmon Wasp to victory in the largest race of that weekend, one of the largest races of the year, called the Wheeler Shebler. I think it was 250 miles. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the that was Saturday. They didn't run on Sunday because of the Sabbath, and that was the way the world worked back then. And then they <laughs> went to Monday. And Haroon's out there practicing because he wanted to run it in a few of the sprint races. And a tire lets go. And uh, I think he was coming out of the third turn. And 
they had a concrete wall then, and <clears throat> nothing like today, but they did have a, a retaining wall. He almost went over the wall and then landed back on the track. And the car was just really, really beat up. And in fact, the Marmon officials at first glance said, we got to scrap it. And then they decided, now we can build this thing. They got back and looked at it. And of course, they did. And the rest is history. But I I just think those are uh, interesting points about the... Uh, uh, the Marmon Wasp that most people don't know. And it would have been really fascinating to see all that unfold. Uh, Barney Oldfield had the Blitz and Benz out there to run for track records, uh, which is, I've seen a replica of that thing. Just an amazing looking car. And to think of it in its day running on the track, um, it was basically a, a, a land speed record car. That's what it really was. Yeah. And uh, of its time. So uh, not, I, I think, uh, you know, off the top of my head, that would be really interesting. I think there's a romantic appeal to the the uh, uh, the American Grand Prize that Bruce mm-hmm. Brown won a, won a couple of times. The Vanderbilt Cup, certainly. I helped uh, Howard Cropley, who is probably easily the best historian in the world on the Vanderbilt Cup races of Long Island. I helped him, helped him write his book on those races, and that's fascinating stuff. And really, that was like going to school for me, uh, as far as <laughs> things things I came out of, I took away from that experience. I applied into uh, my book. Excellent. Yeah, Mark, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, and yeah. but. Besides coming on the show, I want to thank you so much just for preserving and making available uh, the racing history that you have. Um, I I know I've used your website as a resource for a number of historical articles that I've written, and I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. where can I go to find this out? Oh, firstsuperspeedway.com. So, by the way, to your listeners, the website is firstsuperspeedway.com. When you get to that website, you'll find a couple of links to uh, – uh, there, there are links to old uh, old newspaper articles. There are links to uh, full full versions of print books uh, that are out of print, uh, like uh, you alluded to. Um, and there's there's a section about uh, that talks about Mark and uh, what a wonderful guy he is and what he's done with his uh, with, with his career. And um, and can we can we purchase the book through your website or is it the your other site, the Mark Dill Industries site. Well, what it is is, uh, and I, you know, going through this book experience, I've uh, learned. I, I've been in marketing a lot in my life, but I was selling technical, you know, information systems equipment, and uh, the first time I really tried to market a book. So I just went through some people that really, really knew what they're doing, had experience best practices and i was convinced that i needed an author's website and just dedicated to to me and my books and um it's markgdill.com markgdill.com you go there and you'll see some tabs in the navigation bar and uh there's a place to go buy books i've also got merchandise i decided to just go full out on this got a really cool logo 
And, I, saw, uh, I saw the pictures of, uh, is it, I guess, your grandchildren with the shirts on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my grandson. Yeah, you've got, yeah, you've got those first Super Speedway T-shirts that are available for purchase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My grandson uh, was kind of like me. He, he, he just came out of his mama with a steering wheel, and uh, he was talking <laughs> about cars almost from the get-go, and he just loves cars. And, uh, he loves racing and he's got like a thousand match or, uh, Hot Wheels toys. And, uh, it, it, it warms my heart because I, I couldn't brainwash him. It's just something <laughs> in the DNA, you know? Yeah. That, so. That's fantastic. So, so again, the, the website is markgdill.com. That's correct. correct. We can correct. also find, um, first super speedway has a page on Facebook. Um, are you yes. also on uh, Twitter or Instagram? Any of those others? Yeah, I'm on. Uh, well, I personally am on Instagram. I don't have much there about this, but Twitter, I've got uh, one uh, one super speedway. They wouldn't let me. The name was too long for for the way they do things. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just trying to one... let all our listeners know where to where, where to find yeah. you and where to purchase the book. Now, the book is available on Amazon Kindle, and it's also available through Apple Books. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's also available on Barnes and Noble. It it's uh, currently available, and you'll see this if you go to my website. But the publisher has a retail uh, deal, and frankly, I'd rather people use that than. Um, Amazon. It's going to be available on Amazon uh, uh, um, beginning um, the 25th, and it's going to be available on Barnes at Barnes and Noble. The print, you know, on the 25th. I just found out that Target has picked it up, and also mm-hmm. this outfit in England called Blackwells. Oh, I, I was like, Those yeah, well. that's cool. <laughs> Totally oh, very nice. Yeah, so that that's great. So we'll have to check the spelling first, though. <laughs> What's that? Make sure the uh, translation's in. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? Yeah. I, I don't know what you're getting at, Richard, but all yeah, right. I'm well, sure. <laughs> we we are at the end of our hour. So uh, yeah. so when we come back next week, we'll update you on uh, the fact that Lewis Hamilton won another world championship, although you probably all knew that. But uh, I want to thank you, Richard. I want to thank you, Louise. I want to thank you, Mark, so much for coming on the show. You were so interesting to listen to, and I hope that we can chat again real soon. I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and Google Podcasts. And I want to thank you folks that listen to us every week. Till next week, good night. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 